Threaded between the Spanish moss trees and buried on the shores of beaches, Don Teal W. Moniz wants the world to know that there are stories in the South. In her debut short story collection, Milk Blood Heat, Moniz injects a new way of storytelling by rearranging the preconceived points of view of the human condition. Dan Teal joins us on the Vulgar Geniuses podcast to talk about growing up in Jacksonville, Florida and how it shaped the story she wanted to tell. We also delve into her calling as an author and a unique sisterhood with fellow Floridian writers Tisha Filioff and Donnie Walton. I'm Denny. And I'm Veronica. So don't go away. Are you currently looking for a bookstore that has a great selection of books? Well, Kizzy's Books and More is that bookstore. Visit www.kizzy'sbooksandmore.com to purchase your next book for our book club. Use coupon code VULGARGENIUS to receive 10% off the subtotal of your first order. Hello, welcome back to our show tonight we have a floridian yes i repeat a floridian <laughs> is in the house in the mist so we're going to introduce our wonderful wonderful author tonight the author of milk blood heat miss dantielle moniz hello hello how, you doing? how are y'all doing all right well we're gonna we're gonna read a little bit about you so the people know um who you are if they've been living under a rock um you are the recipient of the alice hoffman prize for fiction the cecilia joyce johnson emerging writer award by the key west literary seminars and a tin house scholarship her fiction has appeared or is forthcoming in the Paris Review, Tin House, Plowshares, the Yale Review, Joyland McSweeney's Quarterly Concern, and elsewhere. Milk Blood Heat is her first book, and she currently lives in Northeast Florida. Again, welcome to the show. Um, so we're going to just jump right on into it. Uh, will you tell us about Milk Blood Heat and why you chose that title? Yeah, so uh, Milk Blood Heat is a collection of 11 stories set in and around Florida, mostly Jacksonville, um, but you do get a little bit of Tallahassee, you get a mention of Orlando, um, you know, so it, but it's mostly in Jacksonville, Florida, and um, it's, I think of the collection as linked, even though usually people don't think of it as linked unless the characters repeat, but I think that that's a very narrow way to look at um, how things connect, right? There's voice, there's language, there's place, so I think of the whole story, the whole collection as a whole as um, echoes and mirrors, right? There's things that are playing off of each other. There's words that repeat. And so some of those words are the title story and the title Milk Blood Heat. I think that those are really elemental words, especially if you think about um, how they kind of situate human connection, right? Milk of the body, that's what you get that nourishes your body as a, as a child. Um, blood of the body and heat yes of Florida but also heat of living bodies everything that is living needs heat or has it already you know to live everything needs heat to live and so it's also heat like desire right and want and things that we feel like we can't talk about all of the ways in which you build heat and friction between you and the people that are in your lives so that um, yes it's that particular story but like for me that story title ran through every single other story as well that connectivity and so that's why I chose it as the title I think it's all connected oh of course like when when I was reading it I'm like this is so good I now I understand because you know like milk blood heat it's not really random but it's such like three very powerful words that was put together I don't know if you intended to do it that way or not but it works so good um from the beginning till the end yeah and I agree with you too if you come into this title and you don't you know you haven't read what it's about or like read the description on the back like milk blood heat these are very different words why are they together this way but like you know yeah it's these connective words and yeah I do think like if you think about where the story starts with those two characters and what they do and then where it ends in that very last story like for me again echoes and mirrors everything is in conversation with everything else that first story took me out <laughs> it took me all the way out. i was like 
oh she's she's different this is this is different yep. what we're reading <laughs> I, I, I was like well um <laughs> I, when I read it I was not prepared I was just like um I need I need a I need a, a moment of silence in my head and I just kind of like sat there okay now I know where we're at <laughs> that's the general consensus it's actually funny that you know so I was writing all of these stories and maybe the first four or five of them um, I was writing before I realized it was a collection. You know, at first I just thought, wow, you're writing the same story over and over and you're just putting different characters' names on it. But then I realized that, no, it's not the same story, but the same set of questions, the same set of obsessions is happening in each story. And it's like taking one question and turning it on its head to be explored at different angles, right? And so once I realized that, that's what maybe collections do, right? They have these similar questions or themes or obsessions. I was like, okay, this is a collection, you know, and you write all the way to the end. I was like, okay, these are all the stories I think are in the collection. Now it's time to put the collection in order, right? So that the, the whole is greater than the parts. And, you know, cause each story stands on its own and it has its own arc, but like all together, I also wanted it to have an arc. And so when I was talking about it, I always know and this might change, right? Because everyone's process with each book changes. But I, I pretty much know where I want a story to end. And that was true with the collection too. I knew I wanted to end with an almanac of bones. But when I started thinking about like, how do the other things go in place? My editor had suggested I start with Milk Blood Heat. And I was like, can we, can we start with that story? That story is so intense. Like what if people, you know, read that story and then they're like, can't. And then they just like, don't read anymore. And you know, that's the other thing. My agent was like, you can't control if that's what people are going to do. Um, but she made a good point where another one of her authors, um, Nana Kwame, uh, oh, I almost messed up his name so bad. Nana Kwame Aje Brenya, Friday Black. I don't know if y'all are familiar, but uh, he, this is another short story collection. Um, he started with a story that starts with the decapitation of these children, like at, outside of a library. And his book is like really a lot of satire and like, you know, surrealist stuff. But he said, he started with that story because number one, if someone came to the book and only read that one story, that's the story he would want them to read. And number two, he would want somebody to read that story and still be down to ride. And for me, that second part really got to me because my whole project with this book is to have people sit with things that are uncomfortable, sit with things that you don't want to look at, right? Because so much of what it is to be human is stigmatized in our society, like normal stuff that if everybody was just like, hey, that's normal, people wouldn't have to feel guilt or shame about, you know, being human. And so I thought, yeah, you know what? I'm going to make that the first, the first story and people can choose whether they want to continue this journey. Right. Cause it's not just, um, shocks and darkness, right. There's, there's light here, there's joy here, but like, yeah, I mean, sometimes you have to get through the uncomfortable stuff to face the growth. Right. Um, what you're talking about, it reminds me, we did, uh, such a fun age back in last October. And when, you know, um, looking up things about the book, I remember one part where she was talking about how her, when she wrote the story, she started it from a different standpoint. And her editor suggested that she starts right when the main character has that really powerful scene in the very beginning, because yeah. it's kind of like a bomb. You just want to like, let it explode and do exactly what you are talking about. And uh, your writing, this, the beginning story of Milk Blood Heat, along with like, uh Disha's the uh, secret lives of church ladies her first story is just like if you are going to read it you got to know where we're going and you did that you did that seamlessly so we're we're gonna backtrack a little bit I guess I could say backtrack but we're gonna try to start at the beginning not yeah. necessarily of your book but of your writing career can you tell us what drew you to be a writer I think and I think this is true probably of most people who write, regardless of whether they pursue publication or if they like, oh, I'm going to get my MFA or whatever it is. But like for most people, if you're a writer, you're called to it in some kind of way. You know, like for me, I hate, I know people hate when, pe when writers say this, but it's just a fact. Like I have always written like for as long as I can remember. But I think that's just something that I do because for me, when I write something down, it gives me an opportunity to understand how I feel or what I think or how to process, right? That's just how my mind works. It's just, it has always been writing. So I knew, you know, I was a writer and it's actually really funny because I used to come home like from school and like 
just be writing. I still have them, like books of like paper and I would time together with yarn. I'm like, oh, look at my book that I wrote, you know, and I was doing all of this all the time and adults around me like, oh, what do you want to be when you grow up? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> you know what I'm like? I had no idea that like, oh, I, you know, I could write books for a living. That just wasn't something that was in my, you know, sphere. Nobody was telling me that. Like, even like, oh, you're a good writer. It wasn't like, oh, you could one day publish a book. That just wasn't a thing. But eventually I went to an arts high school. I don't know if y'all are familiar at all with Douglas Anderson School of the Arts. Um, it's an art school here in Jacksonville that, you know, starts at grade nine. So, you know, we went to like a magnet school program thing and I saw it and all my friends were so mad. They were like, you can't go and split the group up. I was like, I know, but I like writing and I want to go right there. And so you have to audition and I got in, but even then, you know, so I was taking writing workshops then it still wasn't like, Oh, we're preparing you to be a, to be an author. It was just like, you're writing. Um, I started writing a book, a novel in like 2010 and I would like start it, get to like, you know, 20,000 words and then put it away and then start over and get to, you know, 30,000 and put it away. And then finally in 2015, I thought, you know, maybe I need mentorship. Maybe I need guidance. Um, but what I didn't even, I was thinking of like a teacher or somebody who could help me. But like, what I also didn't realize is that it's really hard to write when you have to, uh, work to live when you're working 12 hour doubles and you're, you know, doing all this stuff. So, you know, I, I pursued MFAs. I got into my MFA. So yeah, I got guidance and mentorship, but what I also got was money and time, which are also things that are really hard to come by, especially in the arts, which aren't really um, funded as well as they should be for various reasons. Right. So always been a writer, but then in 2015, I decided to be like, you know, what happens? What would it look like if I gave my writing a real chance, a real shot? And in order to do that, I need time. I need money. And people to tell me like how this works. Um, and when, so I got into my MFA and found out all that. What was that journey like for you when you were like, okay, time to take a step off the edge and make that choice for yourself? It's really hard. Cause the other thing is, you know, especially if you're talking about, oh, MFA or no MFA, you know, there's many paths to publication. There's many paths to fulfilling yourself as a writer. So I'm not saying that any one way is better than the other, but I knew for me, I was like, I think I need to be you know, I need that institutionalized support. But even if you have a, fu a fully funded program, right? So that's a program where you don't pay tuition. They give you a stipend. Um, and now fully funded, some people use that as a creative language because let's be real, you can't do really anything on $9,000 a year, right? So like they'll say, oh, this is fully funded, but like you can't really do anything with $9,000 a year. So but mine was funded where, you know, I could do it. But I was also married and I was also, um, you know, there's no guarantees to writing regardless of what you do. So what it looked like for me was asking my husband to trust in me about this. I was like, hey, I don't know what this looks like, but I feel like I need to do this for myself. And then, you know, I'm really lucky that I had a partner who was like full support of that and understood that like this could look like I could go there and do that. And then no book still because it's none of it's guaranteed. And, you know, it looks like he stayed back because at the time he had the job that was more stable. So we were long distance for the two years of my program. Um, and then still with no guarantee that anything would happen. But for me, I was like, oh, I, I, I so appreciate that he believed in me enough to be like, yes, I will sacrifice this time between us and this long distance. And it was really hard, but um, I did it. And then I did the thing that I wanted to do, which was get an agent, finish a draft of a book and then sell a book. And so that happened. And I'm, you know, I'm really grateful that that worked out that way. But it was a lot of like, just trust in like, okay, you know, I don't know how this looks, but I need to do this. See folks, true love exists. <laughs> we, we, we need that support, y'all. Oh, support. Yeah, so important. So important. Whether it's a romantic partner or your family or your friends, whoever like support when you're doing stuff like this is so important. Yeah. So um, when we were talking about this, we, we picked your book because A, it's really, really good. And also, it's very rare to find stories where the author is willing to set them in Florida. Because mm -hmm. usually always in places like New York, California, or like some magical made up place somewhere. So how paramount was it for you to set these stories up in the South? Like super duper important that was like one of the main things because you're right um you know I didn't grow up even though I grew up a reader and a writer I still never thought of Florida as a literary place you know it's just not how we're talked about in the media it's not how the people here talk about themselves you're like you don't I didn't even realize that people like Zora Neale Hurston were from here and was writing about here 
You know what I mean? That there's rich literary traditions right here. So that was something that even going to an art school, I still didn't understand. And then, so that was important to me because I was thinking like, you know, I want to write about the place where I'm from that in a way that doesn't contribute to the stereotypes that already exist about this place. Because even when you do get Florida written about, it's usually South Florida. It's usually, you know, like the Keys, Miami, Orlando, even because of Disney World, right? Like, the, and those are those ways they, they talk about us. It's like, oh, swamps in Disneyland and, and, and Miami. Like, that's what we get for Florida. And it's like, well, Florida is a huge state. It's diverse in its population and its ecology. There's, you know, you got swamp, you got some hill stuff. We've got like farmland, you got cities, we got all of the stuff here. And so much of it gets um, just wiped out. So that was the first thing. And then the other thing is, is that I was talking about this with somebody, you know, when you come from, when you're writing from the South or anywhere, you get the label regional fiction, right? And it, which is interesting to me because I'm like, isn't everywhere a region? New York is a region. California is a region. New England is a region. All these places that y'all write about, the, the literary places, like y'all got a thousand New York stories, but no one's like, look at the region of New York. You know what I mean? Like it just doesn't happen. <laughs> And we know why that happens. Number one, it's it's elitism um, of the South, right? Like think about how the South gets talked about just in general. Um, so there's that. So that was annoying to me. And then the other thing that happened when I started writing these stories and they started coming into like, like the public space is that people were like, oh, didn't Lauren Groff already do this? And Lauren Groff has been a really great um, mentor to me. She wrote a short story collection called Florida, right? But number one, I was like, well, she's not from Florida. She like lived, she moved here and lived here. So that that's different to me. And also like, that's one section of Florida stories by one person who is this, you know, white woman who is doing that. So she might've wrote about Florida, but she's not writing about it the way that I'm going to write about it. So like just the fact that people are like, oh, Florida's trending or didn't that already happen when no one says the same, then no one talks about the same way that they do when stories are from New York or California or whatever. You know what I mean? Right. Um, so yeah, it was really important for me to do that because I'm like, there's stories here and there's people here who are worthy of stories, worthy of like, not just the sensational Florida man story, you know, the bath salts or whatever people want to say when they talk about us. I forgot about the bath salts. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I, I was working in Miami when the bath salt man was happening. So I can't forget about the bath Exactly. Salt. You had to be like, I might get eight, You're like in the parking lot. <laughs> I get it right these things exist these stereotypes exist because stuff happens but that's true of everyone like I say okay there's a Florida man but there's also a New York man there's a Portland man there's a New England man y'all all have these people but like why are we only talking about Florida man yeah we're always like the butt end of a joke mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. so I think it's about time that we're we're humanized yes and we're looked at like oh yeah you know they have the same parts as we are so I guess we function all the same and yeah. our stories can also exist in this like literary world. Exactly. And then if you just think about like it, and it's one thing to say like, oh, this one writer did it. Okay. This one black writer, but okay. Donnie, Disha, me. And the other thing all from Jacksonville, all of us like different time periods. Right. So like Disha left uh, Jacksonville in 89. I wasn't even born till 89. So it's not, you can't say it's a one-off thing, right? Like this is happening all the time, but it's just allowing people to break down those gateways and those barriers that are blocking literature that might otherwise come from these places that they don't expect. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, your, your story is centered around women and their bodies. Um, you are not afraid to talk about death, miscarriage, pregnancy, and sexuality. What was the intention was, or was that intentional or did those stories just come about that way? I think, so what is intentional about that is that the thing I was talking about earlier, which is I wanted to put the full scope of what it is to be human on the page. Cause again, so much of it is like, oh, you can't talk about that or you shouldn't talk about that or that's a bad thing to be. But it's like good, bad, right, wrong. We think of those terms as, as, as absolute terms, but they're not, they're subjective. Someone has to define those terms. Who gets to define those terms? Where does that power flow from and to, right? And then also, are, aren't those terms situational, right? Good in one area, turn around and be bad for someone else or in a different situation so that's the thing that I wanted to get down but in terms of women and their bodies you know 
how it is to have a body as a woman, you have to be like, oh, it needs to smell this way and it has to be this way. And you're, that's not ladylike to talk about X, Y, Z, but it's like, but it's happening to me. And who can I talk about it to? Who am I allowed to speak these things to? That's one way that shame and guilt gets written in there. So, you know, there's stories in there where people are dealing with like, you know, oh, just the fact that, you know, my underarm and my body sweat, my body, you know, that kind of stuff. I think that women aren't usually afforded those types of humanness. So mm-hmm. I wanted to put it on the page because I mean, we are humans. You know what I mean? Like, I remember like when I first, first got together with my husband and we were like, I don't know, 1920, whatever it was. And he was like, oh yeah, we started living together. He's like, yeah, I just think of it as, you know, you're taking long peas. I was like, no, I'm, I'm pooping. Like I'm a human and I do that. And I don't want you to use that. Like if you need to do that in your head, that's fine. But no, I'd rather you get into the fact that I'm a whole human and I have to do, these are the things that I do to live just like you. You know what I mean? And so it's like having those kind of conversations like early because I spent too much of my like adolescence being ashamed of my body when it's just like, why? Why are you teaching me that? You know what I mean? That's something that it takes some people years and years or never to unlearn. Yeah, I've I've heard conversations from men. I think especially like, I think maybe Steve Harvey talked about how his wife has her own her own bathroom so that she can do her own things so that he doesn't need to see and ruin and it's like like you said our anatomy is built the same we all gotta eat and we all gotta poop and I don't know why it has to be like this secret that we that we keep it's It's as if women are held to be like this like special angel that can never get dirty you gotta right and then that's a way to strip people of their humanity, which makes it so that it's easier to, if you, if you don't think of something as, as human as you are, it's easier to um, deny rights to a person that you don't think is as human as you are. Um, it's easier to not, or disassociate from the pain that other people feel who you don't think of as human as you are. It's just one of those things. And like, you know, I was with it on the idea of own bathroom. Like, oh, I like that, the own bathroom. But just like, <laughs> oh, so that you don't have to think of me as doing that. I was like, okay, well, that, well, that's an issue. Like, let me have my bathroom, but still like, yeah, I'm, when I'm closing my door, I'm doing whatever I'm doing in here. But like, yeah, um, that's a mess. I think Steve Harvey is a mess. Yeah, he is. Should not be giving people ro- like relationship advice <laughs> based on those binaries. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So like what you were telling earlier, like, I think I knew my husband would be my husband because he was like, yeah, you can fart in front of me. And I'm like, thank you. Because I do fart. Because like, I will. So I'm glad that you're okay with it. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. when I was out, when I was reading, like, you know, like when we, when she was like smelling her underarm, because I do that a lot. So I'm like, this is hilarious. Because I'm like, I check myself. Like you all check yourself. Yeah. So it's kind of like normal. But, you know, other other stuff are like that, that are kind of like, you know, almost satirical and funny. But there's other parts that are also kind of like painful and like tugs in your heart. Like, yeah, the miscarriage parts and, you know, just like that part of being a woman really, I think, struck me because I, I had my baby two years ago. And just like the process of like, you know, the birthing and like the afterbirth that nobody talks about, you know, whether you have the baby or not, is kind of like very important but again it's kind of like oh you know you have the baby this little magical being yes they are but then people forget about who birthed them (laughs) yes and then you know that's part of us being human so I was kind of like and I think that was your second story and I'm like going through it it. (laughs) I know I know I you know I'm going back and I'm thinking about I'm like oh you came through milk blood heat and you're like okay and then feast you're like Okay, I don't know. You know, so like, yeah, I I get that. But yeah, I think too, in terms of that story in particular with miscarriage, you know, I have never um, been pregnant. I've never experienced pregnancy or miscarriage, but I know it's something that people don't talk about, right? Like miscarriage as much, especially if it happens in an earlier trimester and it's, oh, it's common, every it happens, whatever. But it's like, okay. So it's common and it happens, but that does that mean that I'm not allowed my grief? I'm not allowed my pain. Like it has to be like, oh, you can try again. It's like, you know what I mean? And so for me, it was really important to show that space. And then also like when the actual miscarriage happens, like again, you hear miscarriage and it's like this kind of like a curtain being pulled. It's like, okay, this happened. And you don't think about like, what does that mean? And what did this person go through? 
during that. And so um, I wanted to have a character who was very present and very in touch with this thing that had happened to her that she couldn't let go of because she felt like she wasn't allowed to own it for herself. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think that really affected me because I work in a hospital and I used I used to work in an area where in surgery where if they have a miscarriage, they do like, you know, the suctioning of the fetus out and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And then I always, you know, pray or you do whatever to be like, I hope I'm not the person that would have to tell you what to do. Cause I'm like, it always seem you know i'm stepping into a space that i have no right to be in mm. so i think that just kind of helped me understood a little bit you know help me like a, be a better nurse a better like caregiver to those patients if and if i do it again because yeah. it, it's, it's hard though right that's the thing about being a human it's hard and a lot of the times we don't have like a a clear guide of that even if we had parents who were um <sighs> parents that's a whole other thing but like you know what I mean even if we had parents who were able to like guide us in a more healthy or like positive ways you they're still like really you have to live your life you to do the best you can with where you're at at the time and I think that's the other thing about this like these aren't perfect characters but I felt like my job was not to judge them in any way right the characters in the stories the other characters will judge them probably readers will judge them but like as the person creating them I was like I'm just trying to put humans on the page and then let them do whatever they're going to do. What part did autonomy play into these stories? Uh, How did you want the reader to dissect it with the, with that word in mind? Yeah, I think that that's like one of the biggest words for how these characters are going through it. Right. It's like the autonomy of what are these choices I'm making or deciding not to make, right? So in each of these stories, um, the characters either come to new knowledge about themselves or the world around them or the people in their lives, right? And so then the choice becomes, well, what do I do with this knowledge? Do I go forward with this new thing that I know or do I turn away from it and then, you know, act accordingly? But the other thing is, is the way knowledge works is you can't unknow a thing once you know it. You can pretend you don't know it, you can act in ignorance of that you know it, but you know it, so you're changed. And so then that's also becomes a choice to, to choose not to act. Um, and we see that with several characters, but I think mostly what I wanted, what I hoped readers would do, which would be to read these stories and then kind of just sit for a moment. Like you, like you were saying, you had to sit for a moment and take a break after that first story. I'm hoping that in that pause and that moment, people can just kind of reflect on you know, you're not going to have all of the same experiences as these characters. That's, you're not supposed to, right? But if you, you know, what about their experiences and the way they move through their life, can you reflect on in your own? And that's what I kind of hoped people would do. Not that I'm trying to lead them to any specific moral judgment, but I'm just like, hey, this is, I'm depicting these characters in this subset of life and like how, how, especially how systems work and shape our lives, right? If we think about, um, white supremacy and patriarchy and capitalism, right? Um, But I'm not moving anybody to have a moral judgment. I'm just like, look, look at this, understand, and then, you know, reflect. Yeah, I think you were just stating facts in stories where people can relate a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, So why was it important to have uh, the voices of children to be as strong as defined in some of your stories? I think people forget children are humans uh, really easily, right? It's easy to, you know, there's something about like you grow up and you're dealing with all these things, you gotta pay the bills, blah, blah, blah. But I think so many people are disconnected from their own childhoods because of trauma, because they feel, you know, too busy. They got, you know, now they gotta hustle because that's how our adult like lives work. But I think that people don't, or they forget for some reason, or they don't care or whatever the question is or whatever the reason is, but like people forget that children are humans, that they're here for the first time, that they're their most vulnerable and need protection. It's, it's usually the adults in their lives that are supposed to give them protection and guidance. And then it's oftentimes those adults in their lives who are um, doing that in a way that is harmful, um, doing that in a way that is controlling, doing that in a way that is, um, not really a not really setting them up to like be 
curious and engaging in, in their adult lives, right? Which is something that if you carry with you, you're always growing, you're always learning and growing until death, right? But um, I think that it was important just because, you know, that's such an intense an important time you're trying to discover like what the world means like what people are saying it is and what it actually is and like how the two like how to survive in that space of like unlanguageable terms you know you're expected to act a certain way especially as a teenage girl right or like as a, as a girl coming up you become like responsible for adult reactions to yourself especially if you think about uh how you're supposed to not do certain things so that men won't look at you a certain way or whatever it is. Um, you know, your body's changing, you're getting your period, you know, you're, you're starting to realize that your parents are humans and that you don't always ad- agree with them. But so these, all these things are happening, but nobody will talk to you honestly about it. At least that's how it was for me growing up. People like, you need to stay in a child's place. And I'm like, well, I have questions. <laughs> like, who, do, who do I bring these to then? If not you, the person who is, you know, in authority over me. Um, and so it was just really important for me to get that down. I haven't lost like my connection to what my childhood, actually, I always like walk into a room and I'm like, where's the adult? I'm like, Oh, I'm the adult. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like, Oh no, I'm, I'm the adult. You know what I mean? So I feel like I'm always going to be kind of like a child. And I think that that's a great way to be. Cause then I'm always like curious and like ready. And I haven't gotten to that place where you, um, stifle your own growth. And I hope that like that doesn't happen. But yeah, I think that it's just really important to remember that like it's important. It's an important phase and you should, you know, we should be maybe listening and giving children a little bit more credit. You know what I mean? Because honestly, if you think about, you know, and people have different ideas about spirituality and like religion or whatever. But if you think of like children being born, they're closer, they're closest to the source as we're going to be until you die. Right. In return. So like, you know, they just came from out of that. And so like, there's a lot of that, like spooky children wisdom and just like connectedness that I think um, we should do better to protect um, as adults who are caregivers for children. Yes. To all of that, to all of that, you, uh, your story opens up with, um, with a quote from their eyes were watching God. And so in your story, in the hearts of our enemies, you have like this small, it's, it's not throughout, but it is in there. Um, what seems like a Greek chorus that comments on the supposed affair that the mother is having uh, with this teacher. Is that like an echo to their eyes were watching God when the neighbors are, are sitting out and talking about Janie and her coming home? No, it wasn't intentionally, but that's a really cool connection, actually. I say that's actually one of my favorite things about um, writing a book and having readers. You know, like, it's not complete with just me writing it. Like, the reader-writer engagement is so important to the text, right? Because a reader will come and bring their own life experience to the pages, and it can be completely transformative. So there's stuff that I maybe wasn't thinking about that now, like, you're saying, and I'm like, I mean, that works, Right the chorus of like um, the watchers, right? The people who are watching and judging, even though they they oftentimes will not watch and judge their own behaviors, uh, right? And there is a section in there where Margot says that, you know, they're talking about her mother's infidelity when, you know, she's like, well, most of them are like not ignoring the fact that their husbands have been stepping out on them or that they've wanted to step out on their husbands, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's really cool to think about though. That's her favorite book. That's I why. was trying not to say. <laughs> Anytime we have somebody and they bring it up, I'm like, yes, it's my favorite. I have a whole tattoo dedicated <gasps> to it. Let me see. Can I see? I it? Love it. Oh, well, it's like a hieroglyphic. I don't know if you can Ooh. see. It it's different symbols that's like tell the story from beginning to end. I love so that. So it's the conversation start because people will be like, what, what, is, what is that? And I'm like, well, there's this story. <laughs> yes. Um. I came to that quote, you know, real gods, you know, half gods are worshiped in wine and flowers, real gods require blood. And for me, I felt like that fit the whole mood of what I was trying to do It's like, because it's like, oh, the things that we think are work and self-improvement, like the light, the good, you know, all this kind of stuff. It's like, yes, that is that. But like, if you want to do the real work of growth, it's a little bit bloody. It's a little bit dark sometimes. Um, And so for me, I was just like, oh my God, that's perfect. That's perfect. And I, and then I, yeah. Yeah. It's blood, blood, sweat, and tears. Yeah. And again, not without joy, not without happiness. But if you think about these things in binaries, like happy, sad, good, bad, evil, whatever, it's like, 
they can't exist without its opposite. Like, what does it mean if it doesn't have it, that opposite thing attached to it? Mm -hmm. So what is, um, what is one part of your book that people gloss over and you wish people would talk about more? Um, exotics is one thing. Uh, I feel like people think that, you know, they think like, I don't understand what this story is doing in this book at all. Like, it feels like an outlier. Like, I don't get it. It feels like, you know, this is a book of realism and suddenly we're in this surreal place. But it's really interesting because um, I'm doing the same thing in that story that I'm doing in all of the other stories, right? Which is talking about the systems of oppression that we live in. Uh, I'm talking about complicity. I'm talking about class. Um, I'm just doing it so literally that it seems surreal, right? So, and then it's also really interesting because um, we don't have access to the spaces that the uber wealthy have access to, right? We know what they want us to know about what they do, but like, we don't know like what they do. And I'm not saying they're sitting there eating people, you know, eating people's babies. I'm not saying that, but I don't know what they're doing. Yeah. And also, and so that's actually the part, um, because that story seems surreal to people, they actually miss what is symbolic about that story, which is in the, eat, in the eating of the young, right? Think about that. We always eat the young. We have always eaten the young. And what I mean by that is um, youth is used for everything. It's used to sell things. It's used as a scapegoat. You know, everyone who's a millennial knows that. Oh, it's the millennial's fault. The housing market's going down. It's millennial. You know what I mean? And, and so it's interesting to think about how bitter we are about youth in general, how disdainful, how, how condescending we are to it. So much so that when you are actually young, um, you're not ever prepared to be old, right? It's all about your youth and your youngness. And then all of a sudden you, you're like 35 and you look back and you're like, oh, I can see it going, but nobody has prepared me for it, for this other direction and how to live. And I think that um, the cycle continues, right? So then you become bitter because um, you lost your youth and you didn't even know what it was valued at. And now you've got this other life that no one's prepared you for. And you, and you in turn feel the same way about the youth coming up after you, instead of like thinking about the youth as like our future, which it literally is and preparing people to like do, do great things. We don't. And then we just perpetuate like a cycle. So um, yeah, that's one of the things that gets glossed over a lot, which I'm like, why would you think like a whole story would be a mistake? That story is fire. And I don't know why anybody would gloss over it. It is absolutely my favorite story in the entire book because it had me reading it twice. I was like, wait a minute. First, I was like, did I just read what I just read? I'm like, did it, did it eat the young? I'm like, what? What? I had, I had to be like, did you finish that story yet? Oh, okay. Let me come back later. I love that. See, that's the other thing. I... I don't mind, uh, actually, I, some of my favorite stories are stories that require me to do a little bit more work. And I'm okay with that. Like, I think that, you know, some people have come to my stories and are like, I don't know what happened by the end of it. I feel like it was unresolved. And I'm like, well, I, I'm gonna kindly disagree with you that I feel like I have given you everything necessary in the story. It might require a close reading, right? And that's okay too. I think it's okay for authors to, you know, be like, hey, you might have to pay attention. You know what I mean? Like, um, but I really appreciate that you really love that story because like, I really like that story. And I do love the fact that like, you get to the end, you're like, wait a minute, right? Because it's never outright said, but mm -hmm. you get these context clues, these very important context clues about what's happening. And then that makes it all the more, um, I don't even know what the, the feeling is, but like when the servers leave and they also take the bag, right? And that, that for me was the moment of complicity. Like, I'm not saying that these servers are bad because they're trying to keep the roofs over their children's head. Like we're all complicit with the systems that we live in just by existing in them, right? We all have to have jobs. We need to, you know, have healthcare and like we, need, we wanna feed our children and we wanna be, we wanna have a good quality of life. And so that requires us to be complicit, but it's like, what are the ways in which we are also taking the bag? in our own lives you know what I mean mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's very loaded it's it's the shortest one but it's like yeah yeah you did that you 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 deserve a Pulitzer just for that ah! story. <laughs> I mean I'll take it if they're gonna give it to me you know I'm, if they don't give you one I'll make you one and I'll say thank it. you thank you <laughs> 
Uh, well, of all, I guess you answered this of all the, or maybe you didn't, of all the stories that you wrote, um, which one was the closest to you, to your heart? Oh, that's so hard. That's hard because, um, you know, they're all fiction, but they all are of me, right? You know, so it's really hard to think of like what's closest because at some point in time, each of these stories was closest because for whatever reason it came to me and it came out of me in this particular form. But I think for me, um, it's probably outside the raft just because um, that moment that happens between those two cousins, right? Um, that are so close. And it's not as if, you know, I don't want to give it away for people who haven't read it yet, but this, you know, they go to the beach. Um, so that, that could maybe tell you a lot, you know, what happens between them. And we get that flash uh, forward we, to the present or like, you know, to the future where we know that, um, you know, Tweet is no longer there. They don't know where she is. We know that um, her children are now being raised by the grandmother who raised her. And we know that the uh, cousins are not in contact with each other. And so it goes back to that last moment, them two on the beach, you know, and the last line between them that we get is, I love you, you know, that this is happening. But it's like, that moment is so hard because it's like, okay, and that love is true, but whatever that love was, it wasn't enough to keep her from going out into the world the way that she did. And you know what I mean? And, and you have to imagine that the thing that happens between them is probably a part of that on top of all of these other things that, you know, this character has gone through. So that's a story that's really close to me. Um, and I think about sometimes that I really like the idea of thinking of these characters lives going on after last page. And that is for me, one of the reasons why my endings in the way that they do is that there's all this space around the last page and that you can still kind of sense like what's coming for these characters, right? Another great example of that is um, Fred and the loss of heaven, right? We don't see him hitting a bottom, but you can sense that it's coming for him just based on where he is at that last sentence. And that is what I really love about um, short fiction in, in, in particular. It's just like, you can see what's not on the page by virtue of what the writer did give you. Yeah, I, I think I like it because also it opens up conversation easier and then it's to me it's fun to talk about the books that I love to people that I enjoy reading them with yeah so it leaves a lot of interpretation a lot of reflection I think and also it I think drives home you know the messages that you want to tell the readers and like the people the people that would want to invest the time um reading the book um is this the medium that you want to live on, like short story writing, or do you want to do like a full novel in the future? I was supposed to do a novel first. I'm going to be real with you. But then I was like, well, this book is closer and I need to get paid <laughs> because like, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like so many people don't talk about like the fact that like sometimes it's like, okay, I need a paycheck because like that's how it was. You know, I had gotten a... um a grant from the Elizabeth George Foundation in my last year of my MFA. So like, you know, I did the MFA, I got an agent while I was there. So those were things that were happening. And then I got this, oh, here's $30,000 for you to have for a year. And so I was like, okay, great. This is a great start. You know, and again, you can't count on any of these things. So when they happen, like pretty much the whole publishing industry is like a lottery system, right? Everyone's applying to the same stuff. You're just like, please, please, please. But so I got this, you know, and in that year I was like, oh, I'm going to write I'm going to finish my next draft of my novel because I had a first draft of it. Um, it's actually the reason why I went to the MFA. That was the book that I was trying to work on. Um, and then I was like, oh, I, but I was writing these stories and I was stuck on the, on the novel entirely. And, you know, that money, $30,000 is not a lot. It's like a lot of money to get for free, but it's also like not a lot of money if you think about it in terms of a whole year, right, of support. And so like that year was clicking down and, you know, I was still stuck on the novel and I had like, seven or eight stories a lot of them were published and I called my agent I was like I think you know what do you feel about like if we if we went out with the stories first and the and the reason why people don't usually go out with short stories collections first is because the publishing industry is very biased against them you know it's like short stories don't sell nobody will read them it's hard to do that you have to have a novel also 
Um, and I, and that's not true and that's changing, but it's really great to have somebody in your corner who also is like, I support you and the work that you are doing. Not just like, you know, cause a lot of people want to use the story collections as a vehicle for the novel, but it's like, they're an art in and of themselves. This is something that I made intentionally, you know what I mean? And I want it to be respected as this. So thankfully I had an agent who was on my side and I had an editor who was on my side. But yeah, so I am, I'm still trying to work on that novel. So I don't know if I'm a novelist yet because I haven't, I'm on the second draft. I'm about halfway through my second draft of the novel. So we'll see what happens by the end of the year. My goal is to have a full second draft by the end of the year and then see what happens. Um, so we've read, we've read some books, <laughs> a lot of books, and sometimes they're either too descriptive or too dry. You and some of the authors that, um, that we've read, like Kali and, and Disha, um, have the talent to finesse your work. It feels as if the words just jump off the page. What was that process of selecting those words? Because language is, is really important when you're asking somebody to read a story. Yeah. And, and so how, how was that for you? I feel like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to answer that exactly, right? Because so much of... Um, at least for me, I, so much of what I do is intuitive. You know, it's just something that I'm like, oh, and then I have to, I'm, because now that I've published a book and people ask you like, what's your process? I've had to now think more consciously about the things that I do unconsciously, which is good for me actually, because the next time I do it, I can do it with more intention. But one of the things that for me, and, and, and poets do this just always, and this is why I think it's really important for prose writers to read some poetry and like listen to how that goes is because that is like the rawest, like most inventive language ever what poets do. But one of the things that um, poets do better over prose writers is um, think about rhythm and sound in their work. And for me, um, I just can't separate the fact that I build a story from the sentence up. So like, you know, some people are like, you know, they start with like, okay, here's my general idea and whatever, you know, whatever works for you. But I literally have to start at the smallest sentence and like, I, it needs to sound right to me. There's this thing that I do where, um, Sometimes I'm looking for a certain word and nine times out of 10, if I use the word that sounds right and then I look it up in the dictionary, it's usually the closest to what I actually meant, like a meaning. And I don't know how that works or why that is, but that's just the way that it is. So that me, rhythm, sound, how it sounds. So I read out loud to myself, if, if, it does, if it's not right rhythmically, I go back and I change it. And so I think being really attentive to sound and white space and silence, right? So it's weird to say, oh, silence in stories, especially if it's meant to be read, you know, silently, but like white space operates as silence. Sometimes the way you use certain punctuation. So I'm really attuned to those kinds of things. And also the image. Um, I feel like I'm a really imagistic person. So all day I'm either translating images into words or vice versa. Like even when I'm watching television, I'm aware that someone wrote this. And so what I'm thinking about when I'm watching is like, okay, how do they get this writing to this image? Which my husband's like, can we just watch? I was like, listen, listen, I have to watch how I watch, okay? This is what I'm a storyteller. I'm trying to think about the narrative here, but like, you know what I mean? Like, but doing even that, like even like getting your writing right from other, other arts, I think is a way to like, um, bring dimensions to the to the writing on the page so that it feels three-dimensional to somebody else. Because the other thing, obviously it's, it's, it's literature, it's it's reading and it's, it's supposed to be engaged with intellectually. Like it happens up in the brain, but I also wanted my work to be um, engaged with physically, like emotions, right? Think about like your feelings. That's not a projection of the mind. That is happening physically in your body. And that's a type of intelligence. And so I, my goal was, I was like, how do I take the emotions from a two-dimensional page and transfer that to a stranger who might pick up this book. So anytime, you know, anybody like reaches out to me like, oh, this made me feel X, Y, Z. And I'm like, yeah, okay. I did my job. That's what I was trying to do. Yeah. And, like, I, yeah. Yeah, and, and I think for me and for us, I think you've done that because we, we gravitate towards like writers that have this like three-dimensional image you like you summed it up perfectly and then you can see it you can feel as if you are in the room with them and when I feel that and I'm like it's magic it's like I I'm I'm reading I'm reading a good a good book that that's when you know like intrinsically like your soul is kind of like okay you're in this and you're in this world now quiet hush so you can know what the people are talking about 
Yeah, it's like being a witness in the stories. Can I ask you just because I'm so interested in how other people's minds work. When you read, do you see images? Do the words make like images in your head or is it just, does it stay words? Nope, pictures. Pictures, pictures, both of you pictures. Okay, do you know that there are people who don't do that? They just see words? I don't know what they see. And that's what I'm trying to ask everybody now because I'm like, I don't understand. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm like, wait, wait, I don't understand. So sad. It's not an image. So I'm just like, wait, but do you see the word? Because that's an image too, kind of. I don't know, but I'm curious. I haven't met a person yet, but I just found this out and it blew my mind. I was like, well, that makes sense that other people think maybe differently, but that like, what do you see if you're not seeing images up there? It's pictures, it's moving pictures. It's like a movie in my head. Yeah, it becomes a movie. Like it, I can hear the words read aloud in my inner voice. And then it's like images, but like the people that don't do that, what does it, what, the, what is it? Maybe that's a question for people who are like speed readers. Because yeah, ask everybody because I want to know. Like, if you find them, let me know so I can listen to that episode. I just want to know. That's, yeah. Okay, we got to add that to the list of questions. That is, that's an yeah. interesting question. I, I don't know how to process that right now because I'm just like, <laughs> well, what is imagination? What are feelings for you? That's like, what I'm saying. Are you, are you a robot? Like, that's what I'm saying. Maybe a second question to pair that with to help you figure out if it's common is asking them, okay, so if you, if when you read and it's visual, do you dream in color? Because people who dream in black and white, they might be the people you're looking for. Do you know some people don't dream? <laughs> what is life? They are, they're, 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 they're AI. What is life? They have been planted. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's a matrix. Um. <laughs> <laughs> all right i didn't mean to derail i just no it comes to me sometimes and it like shocks me anew i'm like oh no i'm 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 i'm, I'm in this space where i'm just like when i read that first story i'm just like what <sighs> i need to be pulled back in <laughs> and they and for someone not to be able to like visually see that story play out i don't, I don't know something must be wrong with them no they're not I'm, they're different N no human is wrong sometimes i don't know <laughs> whatever <laughs> <for you. laughs> I don't know because maybe if, if you're re if you're listening to this and you're that one person one person hit us up <laughs> get in contact yeah I'm I'm curious leave a comment and again nothing's wrong with you it's just I don't I don't get I don't I don't know what that looks like it's interesting you're different. different you're special how about that <laughs> so you have established what a very special relationship and what I, I would like to call the the holy trifecta of literature um, with Disha Filia and Donnie Walton. What has that friendship um, meant to you? It's so interesting because we have never met in real life. None of us. Um, you know, I knew Donnie first because we were both applying to MFAs at the same time. And so we got into this Facebook group for people who were doing that. And we both got into Iowa at the same time. So it was like, Nouvelle. And that's when I learned she was, you know, and I'm like, I never meet people in the writing world who are from Jacksonville. So I was like, oh my God. And then sometime last year, Donnie like tagged me on a thread from Disha and was like, hey, she's also from Jacksonville. And it just went from there. And basically we were just like, yo, there's three of us. And you know, that happened. And so it's been very cool to like support each other. And we've done a lot of events. We've actually got another event um, on Monday, but we just finished doing one this past week. But it's been just very cool to be like, these are people who are from the place that I'm from. And they're like blowing it the F up. You know what I mean? Like oh, fire, 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 just like the whole thing. Um, and actually, I really loved what happened with Disha and the LA Times because it was it was so good because, you know, I've been living here. They both don't live here um, anymore, but I'm still here. I'm getting ready to move now next month because um, I took a job at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. So like I'm I'm out of here. But, um, you know, books don't happen overnight they get picked up and then there's like a whole year of like building it up and you know people are writing about it xyz but we hadn't done any of that from you know our local papers our local you know news none of that stuff and then disha said as much in the la times and all of a sudden everybody was like oh my god we're getting called out we're xyz I'm like, sometimes you need it right like you got three writers from your hometown and you're not like talking about it at all 
and like you know all she did that and now all of a sudden it was like all these Jacksonville papers were like hey 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 and I was like okay you, you know who we are now you know where we at so I mean it, it's good to get hometown love but it is also true that sometimes your hometown is the last people to get on the train and you know it's just like from that thing where I don't know what it is but I remember I walked into the Jacksonville library and this is like a month or two before my book was getting ready to come out and I was just like hey um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm from here. My book is going to come out. I would love for y'all to carry it. And I just remember the person, whomever I talked to, and maybe she didn't know, right? Because I, I can't imagine like every day someone's like, hey, you know, like I actually wrote a book, but she was just like, okay, you can fill out a form. You know, I can tell she was like, what? okay, you wrote a book. You know what I mean? And then it was like, okay, all right. You know, but now they have like 17 copies of the book and, you know, they put me up in their little local author thing. So that's cool. But like, it is funny. Like sometimes you're, your hometown is the last to get in there. Oh yeah, that's why you have to leave. Sometimes you have to leave in order for you to come back. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And they would know that you're now blown up and big. So, like, I know you're all the D's. Can I join as Denny? Can I be just like? <laughs> yes, let's do it for D. Yes, can I be like you know? I can be like the the extra D because I know. Yes. Big D and little D, I'm the extra D. I'm, I'm the reader. Can I? Do yes, that? you're the reader D. Yes. Yeah, so okay. Yeah. We're, we're, in it. we're in it to win. It's also really funny, right? All our names start with D and we all have locks. Yeah. Like, I don't it's know how like, it happened, but it happened. Perfect. It's, it's perfect. Good. It's good. I like it. It definitely, you know, when we, when we had the opportunity to talk to Disha, just her alone, it just... It means so much to vulgar geniuses because she opened up an entire world. And we always talk about like what the gate gatekeeping versus gate holders are. And she is definitely a gate holder who is willing mm-hmm. to connect you with people who most of the time get overlooked, you know, because we, as we know, publishing is a white dominated space. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she she definitely like just knock the the gate off and just say y'all come on in and this is who you need to know and it has definitely you know meant the world and to have you three be from florida be from jacksonville to have that connection of us also being in in florida and from florida it 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 means the world um so uh before we get to our 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 big question we are interested we want to know like what writers influence Milk Blood, he or just you in general? Yeah, so many. Um, two, two like powerhouses for me um, is Alice Walker's The Color Purple. There's something that happens. Um, you know, I read that book first when I was 14 in like my AP English class. And it, it, it struck me then, but I'm, you know, like I'm 14. So like I read it again shortly after um, Mike Brown was murdered. And because I had been circling around these questions a lot, I had been looking at some spiritual type stuff like um, like Buddhism and that kind of stuff. I had also been doing some hallucinogens in that year. Do you know what I mean? So there was a lot of like spiritual and like, you know, what is, you know, what is anything type of stuff. But like, I started thinking about how fear or anger is a secondary emotion. It's a secondary emotion. It's usually hiding some other thing, fear of something or, you know, fear of pain usually or some sort of hurt. And so when I thought about it, I was thinking of it in reference to like, why are white people so afraid or so angry? Like, what is this anger or fear that has been passed down from generation to generation to generation? And and the same thing with women, right? You know, like, so much so that like blackness and femininity are demonized in a lot of aspects. Um, and so I was thinking about those questions. I was like, well, if, if anger is a secondary emotion, like what is that hiding? And I, and I reread The Color Purple during that time. And there was this, you know, the scene where she talks about like the, the real origins of Adam. It's in there. And I had missed it somehow the first time, but how like Adam wasn't the first man. He wasn't even the first white man. He was the first, you know, one who lived. And it was like this whole thing. And it kind of like, blue opened everything for me and there's definitely a book that I want to write that I have been like a little afraid to write just because I'm like what's that going to be like how are people going to perceive that and then also like it, it requires so much research that you know so much of our history has been whitewashed so much of our history has be, been re- rearranged to be you know palatable to certain audiences and so I don't even know where I would go to look for the information that I need but 
Um, so Alice Walker, hundred percent, every time I read it, I come to a deeper understanding about like the world. And then um, Janet Fitch, uh, White Oleander was another one because I came across that when I was 14 as well in the school library. And I was like, whoa, I didn't know you were allowed to talk about mothers this way. I didn't know you were allowed to talk about these like things that, you know, people say is not normal or like little girls don't, shouldn't be thinking about. And so um, both of those books are really informative for me and like how I write and what I write about. Yeah, that's so crazy. I read White Oleander when I was growing up in the Philippines. And I think I was almost the same age as when you read it, like 14, 15, not more than 17. And I was kind of like, what am I reading? What is this book? And yeah. I was kind of like, I was like in awe of like women after at that point and I'm just like Ooh. so it's okay for us not to be not to be perfect yes it was very much like that honestly I was like they don't know this book is in the library I know they don't because like it, obviously somebody put it in the library like somebody had to like catalog it into the library but for me I was like they wouldn't let us have this they wouldn't let us know this and um yeah it just broke everything open for me it was like oh it's okay to um not only to feel this way but to write about feeling this way you know what I mean? I wasn't ready as a 14 year old. <laughs> and here we are. <laughs> and here you are. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. I've forgotten about that book. But you're right. It lives in here. I, I got a little palpitation. I'm like, oh. <laughs> it's about time I crack open, you know, that book again. Maybe see see how, it, how it's grown. With yeah. Yes, I, I'm a big fan of rereading, right? Like, I know some people are like, why would you reread? It doesn't change. I was like, well, the book doesn't change, but you do. And so like your, you know, your interpretations and what's going to strike you and where you are is going to be different every single time. Yeah. Yeah. So the last question, your top five books. Oh, about- ever? Well, we'll, we'll give you options. So <laughs> you can do ever or um when Disha came on, she flipped it and has forever been flipped. So she was like, I want to do books that I'm excited about now. And you so were, you can do that. You can do either or. And you were one of them. Yeah. That she said you and Donnie were the two books, one of the five books that she said. And here we are. <laughs> I love that. Um, yeah. So I'm going to do the other one because you know what I realized the other day, anytime I get that question of like, what's your favorite? I realized that I love so much stuff. It's hard for me to have a favorite. Like people are like, what's your favorite color? I'm like, oh, there's so many great colors. But I'll say like, what was impactful for me or what I read that like blew me away recently. So um, no cap at all. Raven Leilani's Luster. I'm sure that everyone's heard about it. It's been, you know, doing all the things. That was like, in 2020, it was very hard for me to, um, I wasn't writing at all in 2020 and it was hard for me to read. Just there was so much distraction and so much going on. But um, that was one of the first books in 2020 that I dropped into and stayed into like until I came out. So Raven Leilani's Lester, you see me looking at my bookshelf, right? I'm trying to like, <laughs> I'm trying to think, oh, um, Red Clocks by Lini Zumas. Um, it, it kind of is like, you know, abortion has been outlawed. And like, where do we go? Which I read that in like, right at like in 2018, you know, so we're in the middle of Trump's whole thing. And I was like, oh, I mean, this could be a thing because it's coming. And so that one was really good. Um, Heads of the Colored People by Nafisa Thompson Spires. Um, did she say that one? Uh, no, I don't think she. Okay, so I was going to say, it's so good. Um, oh, um, How to Breathe Underwater by Julie Oranger. If you liked my book, and you like short stories, you got to read this book. This is another female. I mean, the sentences are so gorgeous. They're disgusting, honestly. Like, it's like, you know what I mean? Like, they're just so good. But it's How to Breathe Underwater by Julie Oranger. That's another short story collection. Um, Writers and Lovers by Lily King. That was another book that I read in 2020 that I was able to just like drop in. How many is that? Is that four? Yes. Okay, so one more. Um, I'm going to say... Female Trouble by Antonia Nelson. That was one that I read that um, is centered around women's stories. And it made me, you know, really be like, oh, I want to do this with my characters. Um, And so I was reading that a little bit too while I was writing Milk Blood Heat, while I was still in the drafting process. 
All right, that's my five. I did it. I made it. Yay. Yay. <laughs> well, we've come to the end with uh with our time with you and uh which we so cherish and we're we're grateful that we've gotten to have this opportunity that has been definitely long in the making and and we're here we We did it and no pineapples see no No pineapples pineapples. i knew we weren't gonna need no pineapples i knew (laughs) (laughs) thank you for this wonderful conversation i on i would honestly tell you this i think you are one of the smartest people we've talked to and oh, of, thank you so much. The one of the most well-spoken authors that we've spoken to in this podcast. Like you were hitting me with fire. I was like, my brain was like, doo, 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 doo. <laughs> I would have to like li- re-listen to this maybe like four or five times. Cause like, I think I'm, I'm going to admit it. It might, and we might have to cut it. Cause you know, there are other authors coming up, but I think <laughs> this has been my most like favorite podcast out of all that we've done. Oh, thank you so much. It's really hard, you know, like, not that I don't think I'm smart, but I'm the type of person where I'm like, well, I know what I'm talking about. I feel like what I what, what is hard for me sometimes is articulating that to other people, like what I'm talking about. And so like, when people are like, no, I got what you said. I'm like, yay, you know what I mean? It's it's nice. So thank you. Maybe we live in the like the same wavelengths of life. I, you know, I feel it. I feel yeah. it. So thank you so much. I truly, truly enjoyed talking to you, Danielle. I'm really glad we got this to happen, y'all. I know it was some like some missed emails and some X, Y, Z. So I'm glad I was just like, yo, let's let's make it happen and we can do it. So again, thank you. Thank you um, for your time. All right. Until we meet again, take care of yourself. Until soon. And we shall talk to you later. Thank you. Bye. 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 We hope you enjoyed our show. Follow us on Instagram at Vulgar Geniuses Book Club. Our theme song was produced by Sean Kantrowitz. Follow him on Instagram and Twitter at Sean Dammit. That's spelled S-E-A-N-D-A-M-M-I-T. Make sure to like, comment, and subscribe to our podcast on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. See you next time. Deuces.